I'm Kate Daniels. A long weekend is a perfect time of the year to immerse ourselves in a good book, a great read. We can count on best-selling author Scott Turow to provide the right combination of courtroom drama and life intricacies, and a storyline that actually has a bit of a mirror effect for the time that we live in now. Scott Turow brings us legal thriller number 11, The Last Trial. Scott Turow, good morning. It is so wonderful to welcome you here this morning. Oh, thank you very much, Kate. I'm happy to be with you and grateful for your time. Oh, well, you're very kind because I am grateful to you for so many reasons for your excellent writing and, well, certainly during this time, giving us a new book to keep us intrigued and learning and, and uh, you know, just really having um, a new experience. This is book number 11, The Last Trial. It is, and, uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's certainly the end of uh, one of my favorite characters, uh, the criminal defense lawyer, Sandy Stern, who first appeared in Presumed Innocent more than 30 years ago and was played on the screen by Raul Julia, and uh, he's now 85 years old. So, uh, yeah, there's been a lot of water under the bridge for both Sandy and me. Well, what's one of the very interesting things with Sandy being 85 is thinking of of aging. That's certainly a factor here. But seeing a career last and not thinking that, oh, I reached 60 or 65, and that means, oh, retirement. So it's, I think, really wonderful. And of course, previous books have had this going on. But here we still see him in the courtroom. It's called The Last Trial. So we know this is kind of his swan song in terms of uh, court appearances. Possibly, but one never knows, I guess. Well, I, I, I think that uh, his children um, would tackle, tackle him and put him in a closet uh, <laughs> if he went back to the courtroom after this case. So. Uh, this is indeed the end. So, and as the, the the book ends with the end of the year, and he's going to surrender his law license. So, uh, he's he's definitely out of the game. Right. What was interesting, though, is he toyed a bit with thinking, well, maybe he could su- do some uh, pro bono work, or he could show up. Oh yes, up, you're right? right. You're right. And you're does right. does so, that re- reflect your life at all? Well, I certainly, um, you know, when lightning struck me with presumed innocent, um, and I made the decision that I was still going to continue to practice law, pro bono work became a a much larger part of my menu. Uh, I made a financial deal with the law firm in which I'm still a partner, a place now called Denton's. Uh, and, uh, my, my request was, let me do what I want. Uh, and you know, you don't, you don't have to pay me very much. Um, but you know, let me, let me be the lawyer that the young man who went to law school thought he was going to be. And, uh, you know, the pro bono work I have done, uh, has been incredibly fulfilling, uh, whether it's, you know, been the, the long crusade to free uh, a wrongly imprisoned man named Alex Hernandez who had 
been sentenced to death for a crime that he didn't commit. Uh, or, you know, more mundane cases. The last, uh, last time I was in court last year was um, just getting something called a certificate of rehabilitation for a woman who had uh, killed in, in uh, you know, kind of a drunken argument, had killed the father of her child. And that was 27 years ago. And uh, she now was finishing college and uh, had corrected her substance abuse problems long ago uh, and, you know, wanted to be able to go on with her life without, um, without the criminal conviction hanging over her head. And, uh, you know, the judge who sentenced her 27 years ago realized that uh, she was an unusual person and had sentenced her to probation for second-degree murder uh, which is very unusual. And, uh, you know, so now we wanted the state to agree in Illinois, there's this procedure that, uh, that she could go on, uh, without having to answer any longer that she was, you know, a felon. And, uh, you know, we, we prevailed on that mostly due to the hard work of, uh, members of my law firm. Uh, but, you know, even even doing something like that, I found in, incredibly rewarding. So I've enjoyed the pro bono work a lot. You know, that is, is such a wonderful story, beyond being a, just a story, though, because here's a person's life being a, transformed. And if if you hadn't intervened, become to her aid, it's possible she might have still been in prison. But, you know, having redeemed herself so greatly is really something to acknowledge and see that they have a second lease at life. Yes. And I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very, um, I'm very committed to that notion. And I, you know, I used to, when I was a prosecutor, uh, I would remind people all the time in the law enforcement community uh, who point to, you know, recidivism rates and want to lock everybody up and throw away the key. And and it's true that uh, a large number of the people who are in prison, uh, when released, go out and commit new crimes. Uh, but there's also a substantial percentage, say somewhere between a quarter and 30 percent of, of people who go to prison, who never commit another crime, who truly are rehabilitated, and who who deserve to be recognized for for learning their lesson. And uh, y- you know, you can't take this you know throw the baby out with the bathwater approach. Every everybody is an individual with individual circumstances and an individual response to. Um, the pretty terrible experience uh, of being imprisoned. So, um, you know, you, um, you you have to give everybody a chance. And, uh, you know, I, I had this conversation years ago with a, a young lawyer who uh, we represented a young man pro bono who uh, had been involved in a, a pretty ugly crime, an attack on a jogger in the Chicago lakefront. But he was... He was tactically uh, and legally uh, not guilty of the crime, um, and 
he, he was freed. Uh, and, you know, his mother called me heartbroken about six or seven years later to report that he had been, um, he had just been convicted of murder and sentenced to 65 years in the penitentiary. And uh, the young lawyer I'd worked on with the case, uh, as I said, she was heartbroken that, that this young man, uh, his name was Jarvis, had not had not taken the chance that, that we gave him. And I said, that is not your job as a lawyer. Your job as a lawyer is to give him that chance. And yes, this particular young man, uh, because of a variety of circumstances in his life, was not able to seize the brass ring. I said, but if you keep doing this, uh, and, and believe me, I've seen that, that there will be people who will take that chance. You know, your job as a lawyer is not to live his life, but to give him the chance. And yes, you will have a lot of clients uh, if you keep doing work representing poor people, uh, you'll have a lot of clients who will disappoint you and uh, who will basically squander the opportunity that you've given them. But you will also have a lot of clients who won't do that, uh, who will turn their lives around, who will get themselves into drug or alcohol treatment, who will uh, be able to sustain a relationship, who will become parents and be good parents, who will be able to hold a job. And... Um, that's what you're trying to do. Your, your job is to give people a chance uh, because if they go to prison, they have no chance at all. And, uh, and that's, so you, you know, that's, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was thinking that chance, uh, if they're in prison, they don't get it. And is that perhaps a bigger part of the problem? Like the woman that you helped and she really was able to get herself turned around. She got an education, but, but she's unusual. Isn't she that there isn't all that education available to the majority of people who want it, who are in prison. Am I right? Yeah. I, I mean, as a country, we have given up on the idea of rehabilitation. Um, and that doesn't mean there aren't programs. Uh, you know, a uh, couple of years ago, Adrian and I met Piper Kierman, who's the author of Orange is the New Black. And, you know, Piper teaches in a prison in Ohio every week. Uh, so there are people like that. There are programs like that. But as a sort of official policy, uh, we we are certainly not as a society committed to doing the utmost for people who are in prison. And uh, that's a mistake, uh, you know, because every person who uh, comes out of prison and leads a productive life after that uh, has actually saved uh, the taxpayers an enormous amount of money because it costs about $20,000 a year to keep somebody in prison. And uh, you, you, if, if you invest that money on the front end uh, and you won't have to spend, you know, $20,000 a year on each prisoner uh, to give them an improved chance at rehabilitation, uh, it will ultimately be a net savings uh, to taxpayers and not to mention the, the spiritual gain uh, of having people who've redeemed their lives. Exactly. 
it's wonderful to hear you state that and and especially with your background and your experience um perhaps this will help all of us to feel more encouraged and and do what we can to also add the energy to work toward making those kinds of changes mm-hmm. well i'm I'm not optimistic about those those changes anytime soon but i i am pretty I am pretty clear on what the realities are. And, uh, you know, I understand people's desire to be safe. And, um, you know, prison basically is a way to protect the rest of us from somebody who has, you know, been proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt to be a danger. And until we come up with a better method, I reluctantly say, okay. Um, but, uh, if that's really the goal, to protect us from the danger, then you can do a heck of a lot more with people while they're in prison to make them less dangerous. That's, that's, that's really what uh, I'm saying in essence. So anyway, we're far afield from <laughs> Sandy Stern in the last we, trial. We are, and yes, that's where we want to get back is to this latest book here in our hands, can be in our hands because it's now available. And uh, of course, we can get it very readily online and you know even our small bookstores our brick and mortar stores are making ways of delivering that to us so we want to make that clear yes we should we should do what we can um to support the brick and mortar stores i am well aware that you're sitting in seattle where um amazon has you know a gigantic foothold uh but um you know the independent stores um have done and will do something uh, for uh, the American literary community that you know a corporation just just can't do. And uh, you know most authors who uh, end up um, having careers have been promoted initially by independent booksellers who uh, don't get involved in, you know, the corporate judgment of we ought to be pushing this book this month. And and believe me, I'm grateful for the fact that, you know, my books have been the ones that have been pushed this month. Uh, But, uh, you know, the the very hard time right now for for new authors and the way they get recognized traditionally has been through independent stores where some bookseller has read the book. Uh, and puts it in the hands of customers and says, you know, I know what you like. You're going to like this book. And uh, that, that's just an important function, not to mention the fact that um, I don't, where else are children going to get the experience of seeing new books and feeling new books and smelling new books uh, and understanding, you know, what what the thrill is of, of finding a new book on a shelf. So, uh, you know, the independent stores are a foothold of American, America's literary community. And true to our area, we have a lot of them. And, and yes, we want to be supporting them. They provide those venues, not currently, but um, hopefully, you know, somewhere later this year, we'll be able to get back into there, uh, maybe in some limited fashion, and, and have those uh, opportunities to meet the author, have those book readings and book signings. So uh, we have that to look forward to. We won't necessarily have you 
being right here with us, Scott Turo, in in the the city, but. We have you with us this morning so that we can get people uh, excited about looking forward to the last trial, which even though it's the 11th book and the last uh, uh, real featured role, we'll say, for Sandy Stern, uh, you still have books uh, coming forward from you, too. My, I'm, it's This is not um, my last rodeo, I hope. Um, and... Uh, I'm, you know, I'm at work on a new novel already. And, you know, as I like to say, I'm too old for them to stop me now. So <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to continue as a novelist as long as I'm able to. I think my legal career is probably in its dwindling days. Uh, but uh, I'm shocked at how many of my friends uh, from my initial days in practice in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago shocked by how many of them have just uh, hung it up uh, and that has to do with big law firm culture more than anything else but uh, so I'll, I'll probably um, you know subdue myself and and leave practice shortly anyway but I'm going to continue to be a novelist well, yay for us, because you still have all of that experience, as well as just being intensely curious and researching, because you go into this whole new field of the medical field and pharmaceuticals and having to kind of maneuver that territory, which is really intriguing and I think a, a, a favor to us because there's a lot of that kind of stuff and maybe even currently as there's, you know, the, the search for a vaccine, which of course can't come too soon. But thank you, pharmaceutical companies and the things that go on. It's it's really intriguing. Yes, well, I, I didn't... Um, for, for me, the sort of point of inspiration was trying to explain to myself how Sandy Stern, who last appeared 10 years ago and had advanced cancer at that stage. He was the principal figure in um, my novel, Innocent, which is a sequel to Presumed Innocent. It was how could Stern still be alive? And that's how I got involved in this thinking about, you know, cancer medications and the cancer wonder drug, G. Livia, that is, of course, entirely fictional, but at the, the heart of the plot of the last trial. And uh, Carol Pafko, CERN's old friend, the former Nobel Prize winner, is accused of fraud in the clinical trial process and uh, fraud and insider trading and even murder. Um, and uh, I, so I had to learn a lot about the clinical trial process, and I try to, try to feed it to the readers in, you know, bird mom, little, little bites, uh, but I didn't realize how relevant to American, uh, you know, daily American life this was going to become uh, until, uh, you know, recently. And, uh, you know, we, we face as a society the sort of moral and legal question that's at the heart of the last trial, which is uh, assuming that you have something, a medication uh, that's beneficial to many people. Uh, how much can we accept the risk uh, that it will kill several others uh, along the way? And if, if, if that is going to be the risk, um, 
can we really proceed without giving people the chance to understand what those risks are? And that is that is really part of, and at the heart of the drug approval process. And it's, um, you know, and, and it, it's, as I said, it's the moral dilemma that makes people say, oh, just try it. Uh, it, it makes them wrong. Uh, it makes them wrong legally, and it makes them wrong uh, morally. Uh, you can't, uh, you know, just just promote hydroxychloroquine without knowing what the side effects are and how many people it will kill along the way. Uh, so, uh, you know, and that's and as I said, that's really what um, that's the factual backdrop of the last trial, um, and. You know, it's it's always it's always better to be lucky than not unlucky. And uh, as it happens, the subject matter of this novel, uh, you know, it is is highly relevant at the moment. But you know, it, it's still principally a novel about a trial, uh, a criminal trial, a, a defense of uh, you know a, a renowned figure, and you know the effect. Um, that that has on his lawyer, who is really making his last stand. And of course, a lifelong friendship factors into it. You get the intricacies of that and and how much allegiance do you have for friendship? And then the law factors in. Uh, It's it's you add the intrigue for us. No, I'm certainly trying to, you know, for all of this stuff about you know, drug trials and pharmaceutical companies. And uh, my goal uh, always has to be uh, to keep people turning the pages. I I want them to be entertained because uh, without that, um, you know, you're you're never going to get to any of the subsidiary goals you you had. You know, Aristotle said the, the goal of, uh, the goal of art is to enlighten and entertain. And you'll never get to the enlightenment part if people aren't entertained in the process. So my goal is to, you know, it, it's it's what's deep in me anyway, is to just want to tell a good story. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy that, you know, the various critics, um, you know, who have weighed in, uh, including the Seattle Times, uh, have, have all said that I, I do a good job in the last trial. Well, I, you know, I have to tell you, it is my first Scott Turo book. Not that I don't know your name, but it, it just happened this way, that this is my first book. So that leads us to say, you don't have to have read the others but it does motivate me now to want to go back and, and see Sandy as he starts out and how this all evolved. Well, you have that opportunity, if you like him in, in the last trial, to see him as a much younger man at the, at the zenith of his career rather than at the end. Uh, and uh, perhaps even more important to pick up on more of the family background Sandy was the principal figure, the the hero, as it were, of my second novel, The Burden of Proof, and uh, so and and that really was about the um, conflicts and drama in in Stern's first marriage, uh, and the book opens with his wife a a suicide, and his 
efforts to understand why this happened, which, of course, uh, he's still suffering with um, more than 30 years later in the last trial as he realizes that uh, some of it had to do with his failures as a husband. Uh, so, uh, but if, if you want to fully understand the background of what's going on in the last trial, at least in Stern's heart, you can go back and read the burden of proof. And, you know, that is one of the things about these times that we are living in right now. Uh, I hear from others how they're going through series of books. Uh, some mm-hmm. are binge-watching TV shows, but here we also are having people reading series, and this is, a, you know, a prime time. We do have more time to do that sort of thing. Maybe it'll be a very positive distraction. Well, for those of us who have worried for years about uh, the devastation of the book business. Um, he, he, there's, of course, much less competition from sports and movie theaters and, you know, plays. Uh, and as, as somebody pointed out to me uh, yesterday, uh, you know, even the streaming services are going to begin to run out of new productions because everything stopped in March. Uh, and all that um, we'll be left with in the way of new narratives is going to be what the publishers are producing. So it, it could be a very good time uh, for books and for reading. Uh, you know, the, the one problem is the one we've already touched on, that a lot of the retail outlets, the neighborhood bookstore where people sort of wander in and discover stuff, um, they're either on a limited schedule or uh, not open at all. So, you know, there is what people call a supply chain problem. Uh, But, you know, the books are there, the books are being printed. Uh, It seems to be a really good time for best-selling authors like me. As I said, I I worry about the younger writers who are trying to introduce themselves to the writing public because it's very hard to break in right now. So that is a challenge. Uh, how to fix that? Well, we'll have to give that further thought. But in, uh, in terms of the local booksellers, I know that they are at least working behind closed doors and mailing out books. So that is yeah, still yeah, an option, yeah, which yeah. is great, right? Right. I think it's important to people continue to support local bookstores. If you want to buy The Last Trial, call your local bookstore, uh, see if they can get this book to you. And remember what your life will be like if that local store isn't there when the damn-demic, as I like to call it, Mm -hmm. when the damn-demic is over. Uh, So uh, it's important that we support all kinds of local merchants to the extent that we're able to right now, because otherwise we're going to be left with um, a landscape where, where only the corporate behemoths have survived. And I don't think really anybody wants that, even even the corporate behemoths themselves. No, we that is not the kind of world that we want. So this is where we have an opportunity to do good and right things. And, you know, before we have to wrap this up, we should mention your website because there we have a, a lot of opportunity to get to know you a little better and find out what else is going on in your life. Right. ScottTurrow.com. Uh, not all that hard if you know how to spell my name, which is S-C-O-T-T, two T's, 
and then T-U-R-O-W, one R. Uh, so it's 10 letters in a row, scottturo.com. Yes, a great wealth of information there. And Scott Turo, you are amazing as an author, as a writer, and so wonderful to speak with because of your passion and your depth of knowledge. So thank you so greatly for taking time with us this morning. Oh, Kate, I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, hi to all my many friends in Seattle. I've spent a lot of time there over the years. And it is also, by the way, one of America's great book cities. So thanks to the readers there, too.